This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. I'm here with Richard Diaz. Am I saying your last name correctly? Or? Yeah, Richard Diaz. That's okay. it. Diaz. Okay, okay. Because I am the French accent, you know. No, it's no. It's always you, a little bit hard. Yeah. It's perfect. It's perfect. Thank you for checking. But no, it's perfect. Thank you. Okay. And for those of you not familiar with Rich, uh, Rich is uh, the co-host, uh, one of the co-hosts, I guess, from the uh, Looney Hour. And it's a fantastic show if you anyone wants to listen and learn more about macro. Obviously, focuses on Canada, but looks at the, the whole world as a whole, because Canada, as much as we like to think we're important, we're just not that important on the global stage. So welcome to the show. Do you want to give us a little introduction, what you do outside the podcast as well? Yeah, sure. So I'm a global strategist, um, which is kind of a an all-encompassing sort of classically finance uh, terminology for, you know, saying a lot, saying very little with a lot. Um, but really what I do is I look at the world from a top-down, from top-down perspective, and I help institutional investors um you know, identify risks and identify opportunities or so, and um, in the financial markets, specifically public ones. So that includes um, stocks and bonds and equities. Sorry, sorry, I find FX, so foreign, foreign exchange, as well as currency. And I've done that basically forever. And it's something I'm really passionate about. And, and I really love love doing it, really. So hopefully that co- comes across in this interview and, and, and the rest of my work. No, I think, no, it shows that you're really passionate about it. Um, and obviously, you know, we're Canada, more Canada focused. Just to give you context, I think our listeners, it's uh, wide ranging. So some people may know quite a bit about macro, some not a lot, and the investment knowledge is all over the place. Um, and then I'm just going to double click in terms of institutional investors, just so people know, like what kind of what's an institutional investor? Like I know, but just for yeah. no, that's absolutely right. And I'll maybe I'll, and and at the same time, maybe I'll just sort of um, elaborate more on what what I mean by macro. So an institutional, there are retail investors, which is you know a mom and pop with sort of a Quest Trade account or um, um, you know a TD sort of self directed TFSA that kind of thing. And then there's institutions, and what that broadly means is sort of sophisticated, more sophisticated investors generally, although <laughs> there are some unsophisticated institutional investors. Um, and basically, those are the people who um, are effectively paid to do it. So professionals, professionals, investors. Um, they're normally quite heavily regulated. They normally are part of a charter, either a CFA or otherwise. Or I think in Canada, we have the Securities Exchange Commission that you have to be sort of vetted and approved by. But most, the most important thing is that you're basically professional and you usually nearly always do that on behalf of someone else. So things like a fiduciary duty or a duty of care is very, very important and taken very seriously. Um, and so that's what I would mean by institutional investors. So I think people listening would probably understand things like, you know, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund might be one example or CalPERS, uh, you know, the California Teachers Pension Fund or Texas. But it's not just teachers and, and pension funds. It could be a hedge fund. So, you know, um, Bridgewater is a very famous hedge fund. I mean, I, they're not a client of ours, but that would be so it's a very, very big yeah. pool of money. And they're allowed to invest in all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Um, Have but you met Redalio or not? No, 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 no. <laughs> no okay. I'm not big time. I'm not, uh, sadly, uh, maybe one day. But um, and then the other aspect of that is sort of there's also high net worth individuals. 
Um, so you might have either a family or, or, an indiv- or an individual who with a huge pool of money, and they often hire people to manage those funds for themselves and their family and for generational wealth. And, and maybe just, Simon, if I could just touch on what macro means. Sorry, because I just sort of skipped over that. Macro means looking at the world through a lens of economic data, particularly um, sort of broader economic data. So that means that might be sort of GDP, so the growth and productivity of a, of a country. You might look at inflation and the monetary policy that sort of comes from that. You'll look at things like unemployment, um, labor markets, and how they affect um, margins or how certain sectors do. Um, you might look at things like energy, um, again, from a top down. So what that means is from like sort of uh, from very high level um, sort of perspective. The, the opposite to that, so if people are wondering, is sort of a bottom-up approach. And that would be someone who looks at a very specific so- stock and knows everything there is to know about a particular stock um, and in or two or many stocks or what have you. Um, so, for example, they'll understand um, everything there is to know about, let's say, Canadian Tire, how their margins are doing, how their business is doing, how many stores they're opening, are they hiring and firing employees, what's the compensation for the CEO. That would be sort of a, to- a bottom-up perspective. And top-down, which is what I do, um, is, like I said, GDP, money supply, um, etc. Okay. No, that's great. And I guess double-clicking on Canadian Tire because uh, you know, we've <laughs> talked about it quite a bit on oh, the show. Oh, Sorry, I didn't know that. Oh, no, that's fine. And um, I also talked about CNREL, which earlier in the spring, they had flagged that uh, I think uh, their consumer goods freight like demand for consumer goods had actually slowed down. And then after that, Canadian Tire came. And I was kind of, I was saying, looking at just earnings from businesses, at least in Canada, these are, in my opinion, bellwether stocks for the Canadian economy. Yeah, especially Canadian Tire, which has all this financial data on consumers with their credit card business. Um, And I think it's an important warning that definitely what's going on with the Canadian economy. So uh, I know you love GDP per per capita. (laughs) I know you're not a fan of GDP. Uh, do you want to explain to us why it's such a good metric? Um, I think you explained it quite well. And, you know, what is there a country that Canada can be compared to? I was kind of debating that mentally. I'm like, maybe Australia has some similarities. But again, um, anyways, I'll let you you go on that. But that's kind of where I was uh, going with that question. Yeah, sh- sure. That's great. So, so GDP is... Um, broadly speaking, GDP is how you calculate the productive output of an economy. Now, that is a very um, difficult task, which um, is mostly a thankless task uh, done by very smart statisticians and economists. But bra- basically, the way that you th- can think about it, and there diff- there's different ways. There's something called a, a production approach. Um, where you look at the sort of gross value added, there's sort of that there's like an income approach, which is how much like wealth specifically a country can generate. But the way I think this is probably the easiest way to think about um, GDP is to think about sort of the expenditure approach, which is the one I sort of focus on because the data is easier to get, frankly, um, and it's easier, it's more intuitive, I would argue, although there are some people who might disagree with that. And um, and the, what that means is the expenditures approach. So, what basically is what is spent in a particular economy? Now, it doesn't have to be an a, a, a economy; can be a region. But let's just use a country, for example. And what you would 
there's different ways to categorize that, categorize that spending. And so there's consumption. So let's just say broad strokes, what households spend, what investment. So there could be different types of investment. It could be non-residential investment. It could be residential investment. It could be structures um, and equipment and intellectual property would be, would be included in that. And then there's government spending all types of government spending, so on services, consumption, investment, have you. And then there's sort of a net export component, so sort of your, your exports minus your imports. And that, you know, C plus I plus G plus net exports equals Y is what we you know learn in school. And that is sort of the productive um, output of an economy or what we call GDP. Yeah. And is consumer span, am I correct? Is it like about two thirds of GDP? Is that around? Okay. Yeah. For Canada, it is. For okay. the US, for example, it's probably closer to 75. Okay. Um, okay. And there are countries that are much, much lower than that. Uh, for example, China's um, economy is very much more dependent on exports still, even though they are trying to shift away from that. And so the export part would be much, much larger. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, it varies depending on sort of how sophisticated your economy is, how rich your economy is and how many, how, if the economy is basically, you know, dependent on more goods or services or what have you. Okay. And in terms of comparing to a country, cause I know, oh, right. you know, our government likes to reference the G7 or even sometimes the G20 and they kind of pick and choose what data they want to look at. And, you know, all like we're kind of, we try not to get into politics. I'm, um, you know, I'll be critical of any, you know, party. I'm not very, you know, I'm not assigned to any kind of political affiliation myself. Um, but yeah, what country should we, in your opinion, that's kind of best to try and compare Canada to see how we're doing? Yeah. So Canada, is a, there are a couple of things that you try to do when you're an analyst, such as myself, and you try to find, you're always trying to find comparables. And now this yeah. is true if you're doing bottom up. So if you're looking at Canadian Tire, you might think of other retails retailers that are countrywide and that uh, sell sort of the same type of products that have similar margins. You wouldn't compare, you know, Canadian Tire with Tesla, you know, you would try to compare, you know, you wouldn't know. No, no, but you know, yeah. And it's a sim similar type of thing with Canada. So, you, you know, um, population might be one way in which you sort of restrict your comparison. Wealth, might be another way in which you comp uh, restrict your comparison. You know, um, the type of products and services that country is spends most of its time, effort, and money on would be another way. Um, you could even argue religion and culture might be one way that you actually could compare. Uh, certainly temperature or, I mean, I know I'm getting a little esoteric, but those are things that might, yeah. you know, change. Uh, seasonality is an important factor that you might think of. And so for Canada, you know, things that stand out for Canada, number one, is that we are a country that's relatively wealthy. So that's one way to, to, to narrow things down. Number two, we're relatively young. You know, compare our median age of Canada, which is probably in the, you know, the 40s with, you know, the median age of, let's say, Japan. And so even um, you might compare also sort of the types of exports that we have. So, for example, Japan produces zero oil and Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil in the world. And so, so the, one of the so one of the countries I think is a, a, is an important comparable is in fact Australia, as I think you mentioned. Another one might be New Zealand, although it's much much smaller in population, so that's difficult comparable. Um, another one might be you know the UK, except you know their service sector is more sophisticated than ours, and they don't produce as much oil anymore. So Canada's sort of I wouldn't say unicorn; that's way too strong. But to compare Canada to 
countries with, say, a shrinking population, such as Japan or Italy, is I think a mis- is 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 just sort of misrepresentation of the facts. It would it would not stand up to any kind of proper analysis. To compare Canada to the U.S. is also kind of dangerous in the sense because the UK U.S. is much much larger, wealthier, more sophisticated as far as an economy, both from the export standpoint as well as a services standpoint. But, you know, the, the truth is these comparables are n- never perfect. You're, you're always going to have to sort of shave off the edges here and there. But, yeah, so th- that's sort of the thing I, I think is important. We didn't mention – I didn't mention GDP per capita, Simon. Would you like me to – Yeah, yeah, talk uh, – definitely if you want to add some, uh, yeah, talk about that a little bit. And then we can shift with the uh, fun topic of inflation, CPI. Oh, yeah, and, uh, for sure. You know, maybe uh, some interest rate uh, from the Fed as well. Yeah, oh, for sure. Oh, man, I'm happy to talk about any of that stuff. But – um. So GDP, as, we, as I mentioned, is it's sort of the total productive capacity of a particular country. And again, there are people who argue it's not a good thing to use to count. For example, housework is very important to everybody's life. And yet, technically, housework is not included in GDP, right? So there are some the problems. Another problem with GDP is that it often can be sort of manipulated simply by the number of people that you have in an economy. And so... One way that you sort of um, account for that is to do sort of a common size analysis. Basically, you divide the total productive capacity of an economy by the number of people who actually live there. Um, and so, and and what so if what does that mean? Well, what matters is sort of when you're thinking about you know improving people's livelihoods and welfare um, is is how productive each person is. And again, averages, you know, obfuscate some kind of distributional issue, right? There's the Gini coefficient, which measures how wealth is distributed. And I think the higher Gini coefficient means that wealth is extremely unequal and lower means that it's less um, unequal. I might have gotten that wrong. But anyway, you get the idea. So, but in general, so the, what, you, what, you, what people should be looking at is sort of the improvement um, or not of the GDP per each individual. And so why that this has come up really the last, let's say, year or so is because Canada's top line, so total productive capacity, keeps growing. But its GDP per capita, meaning the productive capacity of each individual Canadian, is basically flat. And that's a really, really important distinction. It means we've effectively have not gotten wealthier, again, not cash money, but as sort of a broad strokes, just better off since basically 2018. And you say, Rich, how is that possible? Well, it's because we literally just have physically more warm bodies in our borders. And so if you think about, you know, um, if you think about sort of each person's productive capacity times the number of people in your economy equals your GDP. Let's just say broad strokes here. Well, if your productive capacity goes down, but you add loads and loads of people, you know, you can have a situation where your your GDP, your GDP, your top line per number actually increases, but everyone is actually worse off. And for Canadians, unfortunately, that's exactly what's happening. Is it typically uh, that I'm not sure, so I'll ask you, I'm sure you would know, but is it typically inflation adjusted, these numbers? Absolutely. Very, very important point. So so when you look at GDP, um, you know, if your economy is, let's say, 100 and prices go up to, you know, double, your GDP is, you know, your nominal GDP. So not inflation adjusted would be 200, but there's no been no real change 
Um, and that's, I'm not sure if that's why they use that word, but it's actually quite useful in this scenario. There's been no actual change in your wealth and in your, again, using welfare sort of a sort of productivity a, output, yeah, basically. Output, yeah, okay. basically. And so you absolutely have to adjust your uh, gross domestic product by inflation. And it, that's when I say that Canada's real GDP per capita has not improved. In fact, I believe it's down since 2018. That's a scathing indictment on our economy. And we've got to do something about it, I think. But anyway. No, I, I think so, too. And I definitely towards the end, maybe we can look at, you know, some potential solutions. Absolutely. I want to jump into because obviously everyone is inflation is top of mind. CPI for Canada just came in at 4% for top line. So I just wanted to get your kind of general thoughts and also with the Fed kind of announcing a, a pause on their end, but definitely a hawkish pause, I think. That's definitely how markets seem to be interpreting it in the last couple of days. Uh, my first question is, yeah, general thoughts. And then is the Bank of Canada screwed? <laughs> is the second question, because obviously if the Fed ends up hiking or they are, I'm not sure if they're forced, but definitely could would if they don't, it would put weakness on the Canadian dollar and then could put some inflationary pressure with uh, imports into Canada. And but at the other end, if they do hike, obviously, we're seeing the consumer kind of, you know, a lot of pressure being put on consumers. Like that's one of the things Canadian tires said. And lots of uh, retailers also said the same thing where consumers shifting from, you know, non-essential to essential. So we're definitely starting to see that shift, even in the U.S., uh, Walmart mentioned that as well and target too um so yeah sorry it's a long-winded question but just your general thoughts on all of that yeah so so cpi it stands for consumer price index um you'll note in economics and finance everyone seems to love acronyms and i have a habit of forgetting what they mean yeah. <laughs> but um but cpi is one i remember and cpi means consumer um price index and what effectively that is is a basket of goods. Now, how do you define a basket of goods for 40 million people with difficulty? And, and, it, and, and it's often done badly. Um, but I give the people at Stats Canada the benefit of the doubt. It's, a, it's a sort of, a, again, another thankless task that's very difficult. But just sort of so people understand, you're basic, what you're trying to do is effectively distill um, the purchasing habits preferences um, and priorities of Canadians or consumers in general and understanding how that changes and why. And, uh, and the reason it's important to understand that is to understand sort of what, number one, how government sh should pol specifically policymakers should act. And then there's obviously knock-on effects on how government should, uh, sorry, sorry, how uh, non-financial corporations should act and banks and et cetera, et cetera. And so in Canada, you know, CPI, so inflation, you know, peaked around 10, I can't remember quite exactly the numbers, and has been falling because of different factors. So in your basket, as anybody will know, you have sort of spending on goods, you have services. Within your services, you might have your dry cleaner or your you know, your transportation services costs. Um, and within goods, you would have things like energy, you know, clothing and apparel. You'd have, you know, like durable goods, non-durable goods, food, etc. And so in Canada, what we're seeing is a situation where we're finally after... <laughs> After, let's say, two years of much, much higher inflation than we're all used to after 
governments and policymakers, in my view, lied about the transitory nature of the inflation. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I either lied or didn't know what they were talking about. I, I'm not sure which one it is. But to quote George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe if you it. Believe. And I think that's a terrible excuse. I think um, that, and so people, just for people who may not understand, for basically throughout the pandemic and afterwards, you know, policymakers sort of in chorus, which I think makes it even worse, um, insisted that the inflation would be transitory. Now, there's two problems with the word transitory. Number one, everything is transitory, literally. The sun is transitory. You know, in four billion years from now, there won't be a sun. And number two, by doing that, you effectively, um, you sort of you paper over all of the really nasty things that inflation will do. And the reason high inflation is bad is because most of the time, wages don't catch up to inflation. So your wage growth does not rise with inflation, which is to say wages, what you're getting paid does not rise with the increase in costs of the goods that you spend your, your hard-earned money on, your after-tax hard-earned money on. And so you are basically worse off. And so that's why inflation, low inflation is paramount for, and has been, excuse me, paramount for central bankers, because it basically keeps people's purchasing power parity intact and allows businesses and governments um, to make deci- forward-looking decisions, knowing that their, 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 uh, their dollars are actually going to be worth something. So, Simon, sorry, I went off a little... Tra- no, no, that's but... okay. And it also impacts uh, the lowest income households, Absolutely. the worst, right? Because, you know, food and shelter is definitely primary needs. And, but it's also a larger know, a portion of their... Portion. Exactly. Right. Sorry I interrupted yeah. you. It's a larger portion of their basket, which makes sense. If you make $100 million, you're, you're, still, you're still only eating three cheese, you know, three cheeseburgers a day. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad example, but... You know Are you I mean? talking personally here? No, I don't. $100 million? <laughs> no, I'm getting old. I can't eat cheeseburgers anymore. But um, I was more talking about the $100 million, but... Oh, uh, God, yeah, no. Yeah. I wish. I wish. But... Uh, but my and so and and the other the other way by the way that lower income people are you know more more disproportionately affected is that wealthy people generally have assets that's just generally the way it works if you're very not even forget super wealthy just if you're doing very well for yourself um you know and you're upper middle class you might have a home Whereas if you're sort of a lower class person, you might be renting. You don't have an asset. And what that asset does is that asset is priced again in real terms. So it's, it's often, in, not always, but it's, it's, it's generally inflation protected. It's a real asset. Again, using that, that word real comes up again and again when we talk about economics. So but back to what's going on right now is a situation where we had inflation due to something called base effects, which is basically a fancy way of saying the, the, it's very difficult to continually rise, you know, your, 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 your derivative. So if you think of, you know, your calculus one class, your curve goes up, but you, in order to rise, you need to have an increasing amount of inflation. Well, eventually the math sort of catches up with you. Your inflation starts to roll over. Now, prices are still rising. They're just rising at a lower pace so it's very important people say inflation's coming down well it's still high yeah it's disinflation right yeah Yeah. it's called disinflation again fancy dumb names that economists like to use but yeah sorry no no (laughs) no, nerds like me would love to read about this stuff yeah i mean i'm i'm as guilty as anyone of using that jargon but it's true and so what what we've seen is is naturally because the demand issues sort of petered out energy prices you know started to slow down 
um, and we got sort of the supply dislocations to sort of melt away, we saw a lot of these inflation stuff come down from the peaks of 10% down to sort of, you know, I think it was 2.8 we saw. And what is going on right now in Canada specifically is because energy prices are rising, because there is so much excess demand from record population growth, which people don't like to hear, but it is absolutely true. And because of deficit spending, that's not my words. Those are the words of the Bank of Canada, although they're, they're more subtle than that. You have a situation where inflation, instead of returning back to Canada, the Bank of Canada's target, which is 2%, but with a 1% ban, so between 1% and 3 it's it's become sticky. And again, that's sort of language that we like to use, which is to say that the rate of change is not falling fast enough and is staying above you know that 3% range. And back to your question, Simon. Sorry, I'm going on a bit, which is... No, to no, say, that's you know, good. I think just uh, context is yeah. really helpful for, for people to understand okay. and get some context about just that, you know, aside from just a headline number. Yeah. So why, why it puts the Bank of Canada in a jam, which is your real question, is because the Bank of Canada's job is basically to keep inflation between that 1% and 3%. Now, people, of course, argue whether or not central banks have any actual power. I'm of the view that they do. And they do by raising interest rates. And why raising interest rates is powerful is because it affects people's decision making and it affects people's ability to consume. And that is affects aggregate demand. Less aggregate demand, less pressures on, on prices, less pressure on prices, inflation falls. And so they use this lever, which is, of course, a very blunt tool, a blunt tool with lags, which who knows what the lags are. Um, and, and, but it's their only tool. And so the situation that, that the Central Bank of Canada finds itself is that Canada's economy, specifically its households, are extremely levered. So we have debt to GDP, uh, household debt to GDP of 110 or whatever, depending on how you're calculating or who's calculating it. Our debt is mostly mortgage debt. And that mortgage debt is short-term mortgage debt. So between, let's say, one and let's say five years. I'm just using broad strokes. And so what you're seeing is a situation where you've got two sort of fighting forces where the central bank is wants inflation to come down, but deficits are significant. Population growth, literally just more people coming, is having an upward uh, pressure on inflation, as well as higher energy prices. And their job is to, and so what they do, their reaction function is, okay, well, we're going to raise interest rates to combat this sticky inflation. But the problem is, is that Canadians are highly levered and we're highly sensitive to the short end. So the the short term interest rate, and that is causing a lot of pain, Simon. So (laughs) they're in a jam. Well, I also, I think it goes back to what we we're talking about when, you know, your economy is dependent two thirds on consumer spending. Um, I mean, obviously, interest rates are going to hit that spending sooner or later. And I think I think the banks and I, I think people in general, no one really knew. Everyone knew there was a lag effect on the interest rate raises, but no one exactly knew what it would be. I think most people, I, what I read was like six to 12 months was kind of the, the range. I think now we're probably seeing might be on closer to 12 months, depending on how a lot of the debt is structured and people are feeling it. Sure. So one of the ways that we, one of the things that I really like to look at is something called the debt servicing ratio. And I've talked about this on the Looney Hour before. And what that is, is basically your, your household debt 
And then you have that. So it could be consumer debt. It could be mortgage debt. Um, and consumer debt, by the way, is like a credit line or a credit card or a personal loan or an auto loan or a student loan. And then mortgage is mortgage. Everybody knows what that is. It's household. You buy a house or a condo or whatever. And then you have a debt servicing ratio, which is, you know, the, the amount of money out of your after tax disposable income that you can allocate to service that debt. And the problem with Canada is that we have way more debt than we've had in the past because we've all speculated in some way or another. I mean, I say all, I mean, most of us have speculated basically yeah. on a housing bubble and, um, and we have higher interest rates. And so that, so an increasing proportion of our disposable income is being allocated to interest. And the fact is, is like you're, and, and that's hurting sales of, excuse me, the, the, the allocation to consumption of services or goods or savings or whatever um, across the board. And that's what I think, you know, Canadian Tire and, and other people are sort of signaling that this is happening. Yeah, I mean, you could just say we got high on housing. That's what it is. I mean, it's, it's it, crazy. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I like just a personal story. I think people may have heard me saying before, but uh, we bought our house in Ottawa in 2019 and we got approved for a ridiculous amount. But I crunched the numbers because uh, I'm, you know, I'm a math yeah. nerd and I'm very conscious about that stuff. And my personal maximum or our personal maximum was actually 30 percent less wow. than we were approved for. Because I just did some assumption. My assumptions were simply, what if, and at that time it sounded crazy, but what if rates go to 5%, you know, mortgage rates, so not necessarily the yeah. uh, the Bank of Canada rates. Because I'm like, okay, they could raise it to, you know, 3%. That could lead to, let's say, in the fives or high four in terms of mortgage rates. And I just made the calculation. I wanted to be able to have a cushion, be able to invest, save, and keep our standard of life. But how many people actually had that discipline? I, I don't know, right? Yeah, no, I think that that's... And then that's why, like, you know, the Bank of Canada rightly deserves criticism. And now, who should give provide that criticism is, I think, a, is, an, is, you know, I think that's what, better uh, left... You don't approve of politicians sending no, letters to absolutely the not. I think, I think it's. I think it's on both I sides. I was ridiculous. Too. I think it's. Yeah. I, I mean, again, this is they're not trying a to score political points. It's, it's embarrassing. It yeah. It's embarrassing. It, 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 central banks. We didn't mention this. Central banks are meant to be technic or independent technocrats, and the independence factor is vital because you can't have your politicians basically lean on central bankers because of things like high, you know things like hyperinflation or what have you. And so that's a conversation maybe for a different day. But, you know, the Canadian housing market is particularly nasty, what's going on now. And back to the criticism of Central Bank, because, you know, in, I think, November of 2020, um, the Bank of Canada's governor told Canadians to borrow because interest rates would be low for, and I quote, a very long time. And they did. And Canadians, you know, you know, show me an incentive and I'll show you a result. And the reality is, is it, the, probably for many, many Canadians, the only way you've been able to get rich, build wealth in some capacity, again, small r rich, um, is by in housing. And in, why? Because it's a levered asset and housing for and interest rates went only one way. Interest rates only went down and housing only went up. 
And so there are a generation of people who have not invested in businesses, you know, but have invested in real estate. And so at the time when, so, and in 2020, Canada's housing was already one of the most overvalued in the world. Now, the problem with that stat though, by the way, is that it's often, it's massively skewed by two jurisdictions, Vancouver and Toronto, everybody knows. And so, but here's where the nasty bit came up. So you, you had, you know, in the last two years, you had a bunch of sort of smaller jurisdictions with much lower price points and much, you know, and on lower incomes sort of chase that dream as well. And they chased the dream because interest rates were low. And to avoid the stress test that you talked about, they often went on variable mortgages because instead of pricing in a fix. So they, they went on a variable mortgage, which is very, very, very sensitive, obviously, to the interest rate policy. They were offered a much larger mortgage as a result because interest rates were low. They purchased a house that they at the time could afford and interest rates went up. And that is absolutely killing people right now. And I, you're right, Simon, I think we haven't really seen the full brunt of that wave come through. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I know uh, that's probably more in Steve's domain or yeah, uh, Dan Post, who does our Canadian Real Estate Investor podcast. But um, the number of mortgages that are uh, fixed payment variable rates from uh, not all banks, I believe it's uh, there's like three or four of them that have that. And but it's starting. It's pretty alarming. And these people will really it'll be interesting from, I guess, from a macro perspective, but obviously from the human side, you kind of feel for these people. But when their term comes up, because they have to essentially go back to that 25 year amortization or 20 years, whichever it's at. And you could see a slew of either power of sales or I think foreclosures. There's only a couple of provinces. That, that have that system. In general, I mean, what's your thought? Like, I wasn't planning on going there, but what's your thought on Canadian banks? Because I've been following and digging into their financial data quite a bit in the last couple of months. And even going back to 2008, 2009, uh, the loan loss provision, just as a percentage of their total loans, you know, were nowhere near close to where we were at back then. So I feel like we're going to see the banks actually ramping that up. And if you add in some, I don't know if you saw the news, but uh, BMO, I believe, is co- going out of the um, loan car loan business for uh, indirect loans. So I think there is probably some issues brewing there. So what's your general idea on like where banks are going and are we going to see more loan loss provisions in the coming quarters and potentially years? Yeah, banks are tricky, right? Because people have been sort of betting against banks and betting against the Canadian housing market for a long, long time. And the truth is, uh, Canadian banks are an oligopoly. Uh, (laughs) Some might say cartel (laughs) that are protected by the Canadian government. And they have a license to print money. Just so Canadian listeners understand, in the U.S., there are 4,800 banks. Now, it's a bit of a misnomer. You know, you probably about have 100 banks that are enormous. And what I mean is enormous, I mean like multiples and multiples the size of the Canadian bank. And then you've got, you know, 1,000 banks that are regional banks. And then you've got a bunch of little minnows. But the point is, in a, in a country with 330-odd or 340-odd million people, you've got let's call it 1,500 banks that are of a reasonable size. And in Canada, we have 40 million people and we have six banks. And so the competition 
for your deposits are non-existent. And this is why when you go and take money out of the ATM, they get away with charging you $3.50, which by the way is freaking criminal. And in the UK, for example, it's free. So yeah, I don't bank with the big banks. No, because I, well, I just as a principal, I will not pay those fees. Well, <laughs> offline, you'll let me know who you're banking with because I would okay. love to switch. Um, but but just so as far as like the negativity on banks, it's always important to couch to temper any negativity on the fact that they run a cartel. And so they they extract rent. So an economic rent, not a not a rent that you live in a house, but an economic rent, e.g., they extract more money from Canadian consumers than they otherwise should or could in a properly functioning market. And that's very important. Number one. Number two is, again, we talk about this GDP thing. If you have an enormous amount of people enter your economy, you have an enormous amount of people paying these outrageous fees at the ATM. And so these banks, which are a cartel that are protected in good faith by the Canadian government, so a legal cartel. Let's you know maybe whatever. Specify that. <laughs> and they are they are allowed to extract way more money than they should from Canadians. So in a situation where there's more and more Canadians, so those are two things that are very important. So yes, I think that the provisioning is going to go higher. Yes, bank earnings, I think, will come under pressure for the first time maybe in a generation. And 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 I think that. You know, you're right. I think that that signal of the Bank of Montreal moving away from the auto sector, I think, is a really, really important one. Um, and I think that the the fact that they're pushing out amortization rates, so that you know, normally when you borrow money for a house, it's 20 years. When you push it out further, that affects their near term cash earnings. Yes, over the length of the mortgage, they'll make more money, but over the near term, that's less cash flow. There's definitely going to be some a squeeze on earnings, and I think that. For the first time, probably in living memory, they're not going to do as well as they have in the past, which I think is <laughs> fascinating. I was going to say funny, but <laughs> oh no, I totally agree. And on the size for like for people to just kind of wrap their heads around it. So out of our big six, there's two banks that are GSIB, so globally systemically important banks. There's Royal Bank and TD. So that's how like massive. And I think what there's like 30 in total GSIB across the world, something yeah. like that. Just co- going on memory. I haven't checked in a few months, but uh, that's how big. And I remember when the SVB, so Silicon Valley Bank, uh, went under in March. I had a look at the uh, largest banks in the U.S. and the total, you know, total assets of Canadian banks just to see how they compare. And I believe five out of the six would be technically in the top 10 in the U.S. just to give like an idea of how massive our banks are. And like you said, the U.S. has like thousands of banks. Um, So just to give a little bit of context, because, yeah, our banks are for such a small country, they're massive. Yeah, I mean... The other thing too is like the the banks generate money on churn. So what does churn mean? It means like issuing and originating mortgages. So they get money on the way in <laughs> with fees. They get money on the way out. They get money on interest. I don't mind private companies making money. That's not my beef my or my point really. My point is mortgage lending is I wouldn't collapse is maybe the right word. Um, and so if you're not making money on fees and you're not, and you're, and the interest payments are being pushed out and or slowing, 
um, that's going to affect your earnings too. And, and so that's why the, these banks, I think, are going to have, you know, a really, really in, interesting slash difficult time going forward. No, I think you're right. I mean, one thing I've been keeping an eye on for banks is their interest margins. Yeah, And absolutely. the overall interest margins have been not like alarming rate. Obviously, it's just there's what hundreds or thousands of metrics to look at, uh, especially when you start looking at their supplemental financial information. They really drill down and you can, you know, probably look at that for days. But most banks, it's it's definitely slowing down a little bit. I don't think it's anything alarming right now, but something to keep an eye on for people that are looking at banks. I'm surprised by that because so net interest margins basically sort of what you lend versus what you borrow. Yeah. And banks, you'd say, do banks borrow money? Absolutely. You as a consumer lend the money. You say, Rich, how do, I'm not lending banks money. Every time you deposit <laughs> money into a bank, you lend them money. That is effectively the transaction being taken place. And they compensate you with a return on your savings account. And they take your money and they, they effectively lever it up and they lend it out and they get an interest rate, let's say on the mortgage, and they pay you your interest rate on deposits. And the spread, broad strokes here, is the net interest margin. I am shocked that interest margins are not going higher because banks are not handing over the five per five and a quarter five percent overnight rate to depositors my bank i'm not going to name the name that's okay yeah don't need to name it (laughs) pays me 1.7 percent on my savings account and (laughs) i mean that's actually for a big bank that's that's probably pretty good. But interest rates are but but short term yeah. overnight interest rates at the Bank of Canada are five percent. So to oh, me, I'm, yeah. So to me, so again, the reason banks in Canada are able to do this because there's not enough competition. Because in, in America, your short term interest, your short, you're, you're the lend. Remember, you're, when you deposit money, you're lending money to the bank. They'll pay you four and a half, five percent. And so it's I'm surprised that the net interest margins aren't shooting higher really in a, in a situation where they're not at all passing those those interests to the consumer i mean it could be i know in uh like in march and april i know in the u.s they were starting to see a shift people were freaking out with regional banks so yeah. they were shifting their deposit there to either some of the gsib of their own gp yeah. morgans and all the big banks over in the u.s and also to money market funds yeah uh, because you know it's an option to get more yield and that's one thing i've been keeping an eye on because um national bank has a really great report they come in every month it's like in etf inflows and outflows uh, they do it for canada they do it for the u.s oh, check it out and, yeah, it's a really good report. I can send you the link afterwards if you like, but I, I usually will do a segment on it every couple of months. Just I'm interested in seeing what people are doing. Are they going more in fixed income? And then you drill down what kind of fixed income. Uh, and that's something I'm sure some people, I mean, I've been pretty vocal about that is, you know, look at your options. Because yes, there's not necessarily CDIC insured everywhere. If you go to money market funds, it won't be. Um, and some people like to have that safety. But at the same time, one of the ones I'm a big fan of is, uh, you know, there's an ETF, it's US dollar, it's one to three months uh, treasury bills, and it pays like 5.25%. It's backed by the the Fed, right, by the US government. So um, that's one of the ones where there are options. And there's also ETFs where you can put your money and it gives you like, you know, their high interest savings ETF that give you like 5%. Obviously, 
not CDIC insured, but they're backed by deposit at the big banks. But so this is why I'm particularly vexed with the regulator in Canada, because it's in a sense, it's fine to have one or two companies. For example, in Quebec, when you buy electricity, it's one company, Hydro-Quebec, because it's a natural monopoly, but it is super highly regulated and the regulations have teeth. So Quebec, Hydro-Quebec cannot just price you a million dollars a kilowatt hour and say, screw you, we're the only people in town and you either buy electricity from us or you go, you basically die. And, and, and so the regulators, the natural monopoly, and so the regulator has teeth and then the consumer basically lives in a world where he's at the mercy of the regulator, but, you know, hopefully the regulator is doing their job. In Canada, it's the opposite. We have an oligopoly and a regulator does not at all care about the consumer. And as a, as a function of that, those higher interest rates are not passed along to the consumer. We pay exorbitant amount of fees that are outrageous in a, in a world where everything should be automated. And your situation where, and so, and so, and we, and the, and the, the banks make lots of money. And again, the regulator just sits on their hands. And so in my view, I don't think consu- Canadian consumers should have to go find an ETF. I think you say, you know, I mean, you make an excellent point, Simon, but I, I, not to sound, not to be a total jerk, but I just don't think most people think that way. I think people. I know. You're right. And, you're and you're absolutely should, should, right. Yeah. And in, in this very specific stance, normally in different, I'm, I, I, would, I would agree with you in many, many different respects, but in this specific stance, when it comes to banking, I think people, people see it as a utility. And I think people, you know, when they deposit their cash, you know, they should, especially in a world where there's only four options, they shouldn't have to chase them. They should just be passed on what they're owed, which is that short-term rate, in my view. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, no, I totally. I mean, I agree. For me, like for a lot of people, I think just the switching costs in terms yeah, of like the time the that's required. It's a pain. You have to. Yeah, I think some of the options that are available um, are definitely. You know, you can do most of it online, but I've noticed, and I was talking with uh, my co-hosts on that, is just like the big banks. Oh my god, they make things like painful for like well, running a business. It's so painful. Like there's stuff you have to go in person to go and sign the documents. Like it's ridiculous how much uh, red tape and. Like, but there's no really incentive. Pain. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but they have, they have no incentive to change because there's zero competition. So in the UK, there's something called open banking. And what open banking is, is effectively it allows a third party to access all of the data that these, the banks in the UK have effectively. And by doing that, you can, you can, what it does, it, it totally shakes up the industry because it allows, for example, competition either in the form of credit cards that can use that information to allocate um, to do risk assessments on individuals. It also forces banks to, if you want to switch, you can basically switch for free. They do all of the work because the regulator there, FCA, is probably one of the best financial market regulators in the world. And they have teeth. They genuinely care about the consumers. I'm going to say it again. The regulator does not care at all about the Canadian consumer when it comes to financial markets and banking. Um, I know that's a strong point, but I think everyone who takes 
$10 out of their ATM will agree with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, even if you take OSFI, right, they're, which is the Office of Superintendent oh, of Financial <laughs> Institutions, there you go, out of Canada. I mean, I know them, especially from the pension front, because they yeah, do regulate sure. federally legislated pensions. So that's where I know them the best. But definitely, obviously, I know they regulate banks. And I mean, their mandate is really to make sure that the banks are in good financial you know, situation, right? They don't go True. under. It's not really to protect the consumer. No, it's definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, we went on a little, no, no, on a little okay. bit too long for that, but I'm sure you had other No, I, I did have one last question because we're almost uh, 50 minutes in. Um, so, you know, what is the 2% or the 1% to 3% obviously ban of inflation uh, or let's just say 2% to keep it simple, the average or the, the middle point of that, is it realistic long-term in your opinion? Like do will banks, I know the central banks have been steadfast on that, at least in the Canada and the US with the Fed that, you know, it's still 2%, our target is still that, but is it realistic and do you think at some point in the next maybe five years they'll have to switch and say maybe now it's two to four percent with the like the you know middle being three percent i'm just kind of wondering because it seems like a i don't know a hopeful thing i just don't know if it's really achievable and like second question on that like what impact would it have to trying to hit that two percent target on sovereign debt, especially in the Canada and the US. I mean, we're seeing record, not record, but high deficits in Canada. I think it's around 40 billion that's projected for this year and 1.5 trillion in the US, I think in big part because of the the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is, is <laughs> I, I still scratch my head every no, time I come hear on. that. It's, but it's like, it's like the biggest misnomer ever, though. That's yeah, amazing. no, I know. It's, it's just hilarious what they named. But yeah, just to go back, is it is it two percent inflation realistic, or do you think they'll have to pivot and go for three percent? I mean, okay, so if I may, so you know, e- e- different central banks have different mandates. Um, in the U.S., for example, there's a dual mandate, so it's full employment, which no one <laughs> really knows what that means, and um, a as full rate. as possible, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> full employment meaning low employment, I guess. Um, I mean, academics will say that they know exactly what that means, but anyways. Um, and then inflation, I don't, it, I think it's just stable inflation. I don't even think the U.S. technically has a 2% mandate. Um, unlike in the U, and unlike the ECB or in the UK um, or in Canada where they have explicit numbers attached to those inflation targets, I don't actually believe the U.S. does. But anyway, where it came from, the 2%? I do. Yeah. I was okay. about to say like that. Yeah. that. That I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so actually, it, it, it came actually from the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Okay. That's what I thought I had read, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Yeah, so in, I think in the 90s, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was sort of the first central bank to sort of throw out this idea. Well, sorry. Let me, let me, re, let me rephrase that. They were the first people to sort of take that idea very serious and basically encode it in their, let's say, company or organizational ethos. Because, you know, this idea of keeping inflation low or managing inflation using interest rates is very, very old. Very, it's an old idea. I'm not exactly sure how old, but it is old. And, but the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, I would argue, maybe I'm wrong and someone will correct this, but I think they're the first people to say, we're putting it on the books and this is our job and this is what we're going to try to aim for. And then sort of everyone sort of followed suit. I think they did it in 1994. 
Um, I think they did 1994 and then everybody sort of followed through. And the reason they do this is this idea, again, I, I, I alluded to this earlier, which is if households, um, companies, governments, banks have a relatively clear idea of what inflation will be, they can better make decisions um, pertaining to investment, savings, whatever, capital allocation, and interest rates can follow suit from that and there'll be less room and less um, opportunity for misallocations of investment. Now, normally you want your inflation um, to be below your interest rates. Is that, is that, oh, sorry. That's right. So you, have, you want to have... Um, so you want to have real positive, real interest rates, meaning that your your money costs something when you adjust for inflation. Does that make sense? Yeah. And yeah. so, and and why? So that because in the opposite is you get a situation where you are effectively, I know this in theory, are being paid to borrow, which is always dangerous, which is causes speculative bubbles like we've seen in Canada and in Germany and in Ireland. And in Spain and in the U.S., you know, show me a negative real interest rate, and I'll show you a real estate bubble, effectively. But anyway, so your your question is like, do I think this is a real estate? I, I actually don't think it's realistic, but maybe not for the reason you might think, which is, I, I think there's way too much debt, government debt, and zero political appetite to raise taxes. And you say, of course, Richard, they're raising taxes all the time, the carbon tax, blah blah. Not on the right people. And so, and who are, what do I mean by the right people? I mean, old people. Old people well, they have. They could cut spending. That, that would be an option, but not I, vote, I agree, there's not, a, not vote, a lot of appetite for not that. Not a yet. vote winner. So, austerity yeah. has zero, in my view, I know we're getting into the realm of politics, but I think there's absolutely zero appetite for austerity, which is to say low cutting spending. And there's zero appetite to raise taxes on the richest cohort in our society, which is the baby boomers, people born from 1946 to 1964, who have a lion's share of the wealth in this country and most developed countries. Probably our and parents, I would say. Right. My parents are baby that's boomers, right. but me I'm too. assuming, I think you're about the same age as me. That's so, right. Yeah. My mom is 73, so she won't really appreciate me telling the world, you know, the government <laughs> that they should raise taxes on her. She would say that she's paid enough taxes, and she might be right. And then the other third thing is, and the the it's basically going to be impossible to raise taxes on a shrinking labor force. So everyone who's not born between 1946 and 1964, well, there's a whole lot less of them. And so those are the three options. You know, those are the options. We either cut spending. No one wants to do that. We either raise taxes on baby boomers. No one wants to do that. Or we raise taxes on a shrinking labor force, which is, in my view, cruel, (laughs) but also not going to cut it because there's the labor force shrinking. And so as a function, and then, and then the, 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 the hangup is that we have all of this debt, right? We have debt to GDP. That's very high everywhere. And so in my view, the only way that you can effectively get rid of that debt is by inflating it away. And so the real returns on your bonds, so the returns that you get for holding those bonds, for lending money to the government will be negative. And the way that you basically ice that is you deflate that debt away. So you keep, inter- you keep inflation 
high. And now they'll, they'll say that they want to bring inflation back to target, but I think that's a bunch of baloney. I think that they are very, they understand that the only way any of this rebalancing occurs is through inflation. And there is another way you could do it, which is to, you just do basically you default, which is to say, screw you investors, I'm not going to pay you back. <laughs> Yeah. Um and there's and there's another way you which is you do a sort of debt for equity swap, which is you basically sell assets. So Hydro Quebec sells the dam and they pay it to investors and they use that cash to pay down the debt, which is I don't think going to happen in a country like Canada. Um but and so so that's a situation and so you know we're in and so and and by the way this is as old as time. Oh yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. This idea that you deflate debt away is as old time. You say Richard, how is what do you mean? That's not possible. It's like, yeah, you, you devalue the currency. And I'm, I love history. I'm obsessed basically with history. And well, I'm Ray Dalio has some great books that looks about like, Perfect. you know, that goes well into detail. I love his books. So, yeah. uh, you know, I was going to reference Nero. I was going to reference yeah. Emperor Nero, who basically used to <laughs> shave, shave the edges off the coins, right, in Rome. It used to be silver coins. You shave a bunch of edges, you get an, and then you melt it down, and you get another coin. And each of the other coins is worth a little bit less. And and basically, effectively, you you devalue the debt by devaluing the currency. And to answer your question, sorry, Simon, I went on and on, but I think no, I don't think I think they'll they'll say that they want to keep the target, but I don't think anybody has the let's say the intestinal fortitude to to get us there. Yeah. And then if we enter a recession, right, I think you made a really good point is we enter a recession. Uh, clearly, people lose their jobs during the recession. That's just how it goes. And then you can make a case that tax receipts or tax revenue from the government would also go yeah. down in a recession. So I don't know how it's going to play out. Uh, maybe the last, last question. Sure. Is, I, I I feel like it looks like a lot of data, like it will know after the fact, but I have a strong suspicion that we are in a recession right now. We just won't know until maybe a couple months uh, or maybe uh, probably early 2024, I would say. Uh, do you agree, disagree with that? Uh, just kind of on a last note. Totally agree. I think we've been in a recession for a year and people say, well, Rich, that's strong. It's like, well, yeah, there's no... So recession is both usually a combination of both a contraction in GDP People say it's two quarters, but that's completely arbitrary. So let's use that because whatever, everybody agrees with that, uh, but is totally arbitrary. Um, so two-quarter contraction in GDP, as well as some kind of decline in employment. Now, I would say Canada is a bit different because we have this massive influx of people. And a year ago, no one wanted to talk about it. Now everybody's talking about it. So maybe it's a contrarian indicator that everybody's talking about it. But the point is, is that if you just have literally more people on your shores, you just your GDP goes up, but that hides the malaise, which is what I think you're sort of identifying, which is everyone in Canada has gotten poorer. And it's and it's not just one it's not a one off. It's now I think five out of the last six quarters or four out of the last, you know, whatever like and so you see the line in on the chart is quite clear. Like you're we're either flat or down. And so in my view, you know, we haven't had any, you know, contraction in the labor market. But again, I think that's kind of hiding the fact that I agree with you, Simon. I think we we have been and are in a recession. And it's, it's you know, may I just like end with one thing? It's like, how do we get out of it? And one of the ways we get out of it is we sort of lean in 
to what Canada does well, in my view, which of course no one wants to hear in Ottawa, which is the fact that we have this amazing, huge country full of natural resources, and we can exploit those in an ethical and environmentally sustainable way. And the other way we could do it is by investing in research and development, which we have an absolutely abysmal record of. So how do you yeah. calculate that, which is research and development spending as a percentage of GDP? Our number is maybe 1.6%. Compare that with the US, which is 3.4, whatever the number is. Compare that with Israel and South Korea, which is in the fives. Oh, wow. So, okay. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. You know, so I'm just, I'm not saying we should be Israel and South Korea. They have their, they don't have any oil. They don't, you know, there's, they're their own no. thing. But surely lifting it off a 25 year low <laughs> is a good place to start. And how do you do that? You incent- you do make tax incentives, you give companies breaks and incentives to come here. And, and we have all the universities in the world. We've got loads of space. The idea that our research and development spending is at a 25-year low and in line with you know, third world countries, I think is an embarrassment and absolutely a way we can improve our productivity and the welfare of Canadians ultimately. Yeah, I mean, hey, I think that was a great point to wrap it up because honestly, I think there is, you know, people might say, oh, it's a lot of doom and gloom, but there's definitely hope and there's things I think, like you just said, we can do to make a, a better future. I mean, for us, for younger generations, I mean, my daughter, who's one year old, obviously I want her to to be able to make a good living and have a good life. But I think that's a, a good way to, to end it here. Um Honestly, I feel like we could have gone on for another couple hours because there's a lot of questions I want to ask you. So maybe at some point, uh, you know, you can come back on the podcast and, um, you know, we can continue the discussion. I'm sure there's going to be tons of new macro data out that you'll want to be touching on. Um, Last thing, where can people find you? I know there's the Looney Hour. There's other uh, other spots. Right. So I used to be very active on Twitter. I can't really do that anymore, unfortunately, which is a shame because I really enjoyed that. But you know, if you're an institutional investor um, and you're interested in trading with us and or subscribing to our research, you can look us up at PGM Global in the Google machine. And you can listen to us every week on Fridays on Looney Hour, which I would really encourage you to do. And for now, I think that that's it and until, you know, until I write a book or something. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, and thanks thank, a lot, thank, Rich. Yeah. Thank you so much. Asana. It was really, I really appreciate it. As you can tell, I, I love this shit, man. It's fun. It's I'm I'm really grateful that I can get to do this for a living. I you know just learning basically and and eating humble pie every day when we <laughs> get stuff wrong is to me um, quite a privilege. And I really appreciate the time that you've given me today. So thank you. Well, thanks for coming on, and I'm sure you can tell I love this stuff too. So yeah, it's great. Uh, we'll I, definitely totally, to... I have work to do, but I totally could have gone on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely try to do this again. So uh, cool. thanks a lot, Rish. All right, cheers. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.